going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes. The first thing I want to do is mention that the Golden State Warriors went through a tragedy in the last week. They lost their assistant coach by the name of Dejan Milojevic, who passed away of a heart attack during a team dinner in Salt Lake City as they were preparing to face Utah the next night. So their games against the Utah Jazz and the Dallas Mavericks at home were postponed, and they don't have another game scheduled until Wednesday against Atlanta. But I know the entire NBA community has already shown their love and support for the Golden State Warriors, and I want to do the same, as well as give my condolences to his family and to the coaches of the Warriors, the the players of the Warriors, everyone involved in that organization. And I felt that that would be the best way to start off this episode, considering the magnitude of this tragedy. Um, so my heart goes out to all of you in the Bay Area, those of you associated with Milojevic, anyone who has been involved with him in international basketball in, NB, in the NBA, uh, my heart goes out to all of you. So the first thing that we'll talk about, first set of topics that we'll talk about in this episode, the Mavs, the Pelicans, Thunder, you know how it goes. The NBA has now reached the halfway point of the season. So most, if not all, of the NBA teams have reached 41 games. So we're going to look at where the Mavs are, where the Pels are, where the Thunder are at their halfway points, their midseason reports. In regards to the Mavs, we'll look at the matchup against New Orleans as they had two games in Dallas. And then we'll diagnose Dallas halfway through the season. For the Pelicans, we'll look at how they finished their road trip and then look at what they have to do for the rest of the season. And then for the Thunder, they snapped their win streak with back-to-back losses in Los Angeles. But they beat the Red Hot Jazz and they beat the streaking Minnesota Timberwolves. So we'll look at how the Thunder bounced back from those losses in LA and then look at their ceiling for the rest of the season. So first, let's look over these divisional duels in Dallas, the New Orleans Pelicans and the Dallas Mavericks. This was a baseball series quote-unquote, on January 13th and January 15th. To provide context with how this game made sense or had no sense, I need to tell you what happened the previous night for the Pelicans because they played in Denver on a flexed ESPN game. Tip-off was set for 9 p.m. Central, and then they had to fly to Dallas and play at 7.30 the next night. So... Pelicans Nuggets. In the first three quarters, the Nuggets led the Pelicans 100 to 80. It wasn't close. Field goal percentage differences. I'm going to give you differences from New Orleans and Denver, respectively. Field goal percentage 42.3% to 58.8%. From three, New Orleans shot 11 of 28, 39.3%. Denver 11 of 24, 45.8%. Made the same amount of threes there. Rebounds, New Orleans 28, Denver 38. Points in the paint, New Orleans 32, Denver 46. Second chance points. Keep in mind, each of these teams had only seven offensive rebounds. New Orleans got four second chance points. Denver had 12. And Denver shot five of eight among second chance field goals. On the fast break, New Orleans 9, Denver 19. Points off turnovers, New Orleans had a turnover advantage, only giving up five to Denver's 10 but New Orleans scored only 11 points off turnovers to Denver's 10. Zion Williamson in the first three quarters only scored 
12 points on 6 of 14 shooting with 5 rebounds and 4 assists, and all 12 of those points came in the paint. So initially he was striking, but then Denver adjusted their defense, and he was struggling with converting his field goals at the rim. Then in the fourth quarter, at that point the game was over, Zion tacked on another 18 points on 7 of 8 shooting, 4 of 6 from the free throw line, 1 rebound, 1 assist, and a block. So he wasn't really aggressive after the first quarter. When he was, Denver's defense stepped up, and then the rest of it kind of came in garbage time. So it's not like... It's kind of like the Cowboys against the Green Bay Packers, more on that later. But there was so much that they were dealing with in that game where like they were getting blown out and then they had to deal with flying over to Dallas. You don't expect them to play all that well in the first game, especially considering who did not play. So this first game between the Pels and the Mavs, the Mavs had just come off a win against New York at home two nights prior. Then we found out Zion, Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, C.J. McCollum, and Trey Murphy III were all going to sit out in this game. So Tim McMahon tweeted that the Pelicans were punting. Um, But we've seen this Mavericks team before where the star players are out and uh, things don't go as we all planned. This was one of those nights. So Jonas Valanciunas, big veteran, decided to play. Luka Doncic was not healthy. Derek Lively was not healthy. They did not play in this game. So how did it turn out? Well, in the first half, the Mavs led the Pelicans 54 to 49. And based on team stats, field goal percentage-wise, New Orleans was at 41%, Dallas at 42%. Pretty even there. From three, New Orleans shot four of 14, 29%, while Dallas shot eight of 21, 38%, closer to their average. At the free throw line, New Orleans shot 13 of 16, 81.3%. They were a little more aggressive. Dallas, 8 of 9, 88.9%. So efficient. In the paint, New Orleans, 24, Dallas, 18. Jonas Valanciunas stepped up there. And then second chance points, New Orleans only had three. Dallas had eight. But Jordan Hawkins, the rookie, had 14 points in the half. He was the only Pelican in double figures in that first half. And that's going to be a point of contention when I get to the second half. The Mavericks, Hardaway Jr., Jones Jr., and Irving led all the Mavs with 13, 13, and 12 points respectively. All right? So with the Mavs being up, with them being led by Hardaway Jr., but definitely having Kyrie on the floor, you're thinking the Mavs have a chance. They did not have a chance. In the second half, the Pelicans outscored the Mavericks 69-54. to How in the world does that happen? Well, I'm going to tell you how. New Orleans shot 63% from the floor in the second half to Dallas's 65%. You're like, okay, what, what else happened? From three, New Orleans shot 8 of 16. They made half their threes. Dallas shot 7 of 20, 35%. 35% is not bad, but the other team shot 50. From the free throw line, New Orleans, 15 of 21, 71.4%. Dallas, 11 of 11, 100%. So they were more efficient shooting from the free throw line. They just didn't get there enough, right? Off the bench, New Orleans had 18 points. Dallas had five. 
in the paint. New Orleans scored 26, Dallas scored 22. Second chance points, New Orleans led Dallas in offensive rebounds 11-4. to That's the problem. When you don't have Derek Lively, Dallas is in trouble because they don't have another big man that can do what Derek Lively does on the glass. And you got to deal with Jonas Valanciunas getting all these second chance points and offensive rebounds. So second chance points for New Orleans was 21. Dallas was nine. There was part of your difference. However, they did not do enough scouting on Jordan Hawkins because he scored 20 second half points. Finished with a career high 34. That's the most allowed by Dallas to a rookie. Hawkins has now got the two highest scoring games in his career. Excuse me, that's that's not correct. Jordan Hawkins now has the two highest scoring games by a rookie against Dallas this season. That's the stat. He has a 34-point game January 13th at Dallas. He also scored 25 points on November 14th versus Dallas. So really, this has been a recurring theme for Dallas in the last couple of years where people like rookies or just guys that are way down in the depth chart, they just come out on fire. It's, it's like they weren't scouted. I don't know what it is, but... I've seen this enough times from the Mavs to not be surprised. So maybe a little more detail in your scouting, just a little bit more, and you won't have that happen. But shout out to Jordan Hawkins because that was now the second 30-point game for Hawkins in his career as a rookie, and that is tied for third most in Pelicans history. He's only behind... Two guys, and one of them being Zion, who has three. So let's say he gets another, he'll be tied for the most in Pelicans history, most 30-point games in Pelicans history. On the Pels side, give you some notes here. They This was a fantastic response. After losing to Denver and having to fly all the way, they were shorthanded, but Jonas Valanciunas, Hawkeye, both stepped up. Jose Alvarado had 10 second-half points, brought the energy. This team is deep. They don't quit, right? And they had seven double-digit scores. The Pelicans are 6-1 and one this season when they have seven double-digit scores or more in a game. On the Mavs side, without Derek Lively the second, the Mavs got bullied inside. There, the energy was not there the whole game. It was somewhat present in the first half, but it just dissipated in the second. However, don't worry, that would change in the next game. The Mavs had three 20-point scores, but allowed seven double-digit scores, as I had just said. The Mavs' record when they have three 20-point scores this season is 7-2, and two, and this game snapped a four-game win streak. So how they've played this year is a lot better than last year in this regard. Then their record allowing seven or more double-digit scores is actually 5-3 and three this season but they've now lost three straight. So they were initially undefeated and then they lost their last three in that situation. So how do they bounce back in the second game? All of, all of those four guys that I'd mentioned, Zion, B.I., C.J., and Trey Murphy the third, they all came back in this game. Zion led the Pels with 30 points and there were six double-digit scores in this game for the Pelicans. New Orleans was 11-5 and five entering Monday in games with six or more double-digit scores, and they were on a five-game win streak, 
and had won nine of their previous 10 in those games with six or more double-digit scores. That didn't end up mattering. Why? Because Kyrie Irving and Tim Hardaway Jr. each scored 40. Yes. The, if you remember that game against the Philadelphia 76ers in March of last season, when Luka dropped 42 and Kyrie dropped 40, you almost thought, there's no way that could happen again, right? Especially with Luka off the floor. <laughs> Boy. So, Kyrie had 42 points on 13 of 28 shooting, 46.4%, with a season-high 13 of 15 free throws, 86.7%, seven rebounds, seven assists, and a block, as well as playing a season-high 41 minutes and 24 seconds. He unfortunately, unfortunately missed his first free throw of the fourth quarter since joining the Mavs. Yes, that is a negative note. However, the positive thing is that he had not missed in the fourth quarter up until this point. It also happens to be the first missed clutch free throw by a Maverick since October 27th versus Brooklyn. Doesn't happen very often. I will get to how well they shoot from the free throw line in the clutch in a little bit. Hardaway had 41 points on 11 of 23 shooting, 47.8%, 9 of 15 from 3, 10 of 10 from the free throw line on 40 minutes and 38 seconds. All stats that were listed were either outright season highs or tie the season high. It for for Hardaway. Like that that's insane. That's absolutely insane. For Dallas, it was the second time in franchise history with two 40-point scores. That last time was the Philly game on March 2nd, 2023. Teams are 18-2 in NBA history when two players on a team score 40 or more points. If you include the postseason, 23-3. Yeah, so not great for the Pelicans. And on the Pelicans' side of this, it was the first time in franchise history that they allowed two 40-point scores. So, like, they've never seen this before. Couple of quick notes. Let's go to the fast break and the paint points. The Mavs scored a, C- a tied season low, six fast break points. They were previously 0-2 in games with only six fast break points. It's ridiculous. Their, their average is a lot higher than that. It's more than double that. And yet they still won this game. The Mavs have allowed 60 or more paint points in back-to-back games, and 50-plus in six straight games. They are 1-1 and and 3-3, and respectively. So they have found a bit more success despite having to deal with that deficiency. Where are the Mavs, though? Through 41 games, their record was 24-17, and currently 24-18 and after a loss to the Lakers, and they were going to play the Warriors, but that game was postponed. Their offense and defense, they score 118.5 points per game. That's seventh in the NBA. They allow 117.4 points per game. That's 20th in the NBA. And then if you look at their ratings, on the offensive rating, Dallas is 117.5. That's eighth. 116.5 defensive rating. That's 19th. So their net rating is one, just plus one. That's 13th. So they have a top 10 offense, top 20 defense, semi-okay, not 
great, but the offensively they're they're really good. On the rebounding side, they are getting out-rebounded in 27 of their first 41 games. And their record among those games was 13 and 14. Currently, they've been out-rebounded in 28 of their first 42. The third most games out-rebounded in the NBA. And their record is 13 and 15. That's still the second most wins in the NBA and is the seventh best win percentage at .464. So they are doing their best when they get out-rebounded. It's just that a majority, a lot of their losses have come when they get out-rebounded. So how do you make up for, for things like that? If you can keep it close, as the Mavs have several times, you have a chance. So in clutch situations, the Mavs are 14-5, and five, second in the NBA, win percentage at .737. Only Minnesota leads them with a .739 clutch win percentage. The Mavs' clutch free throw percentage is 94.7%. That leads the NBA, and they're the only team above 90%. Compare this to last season. The Mavs only shot 72.5% clutch free throws. That was 25th in the NBA. And really, 72.5% is just low, no matter what, regardless, right? Let's look at the overall free throw shooting and three-point shooting for the Mavs, as that has been a point of contention for me the entire season and all of last season. This year, they're shooting 76% from the free throw line. That's 25th in the NBA. The bit of a fall-off from where they were earlier in the season, and it's below average in the NBA. From three, they're shooting 36.8%, which is 15th in the NBA. They attempt 41.1 threes, that's the second most, and make 15.1, that is also the second most. So as long as, if you're going to shoot that many threes, at least you're making a lot of them, right? If you can be a bit more efficient, you can get a bit more scoring there. On the miscellaneous side, the Mavs score 46 points per game in the paint. That's only 27th in the NBA. However, when they get into the restricted area, they shoot 70.5%, which is second best in the NBA. So really, just you just got to get to the rim. Last season, they only scored 42.8 points per game in the paint. That was last. Just a bit of, just a slight improvement. Everywhere else, there's been a substantial improvement. So in second chance points per game, this year the Mavs score 14, and that's 15th in the NBA. Last year they were scoring 10.9, which was 29th. On the fast break, they now score 15 points per game, which is 8th. Last season they only scored 11, and that only went up because they got Kyrie in February. And last season overall, they were ranked 29th. Then off turnovers, points off turnovers, the Mavs now score 17.3 which is 10th in the NBA compared to last season where they only scored 16 and that was 20th. So what are they missing? Why are they in the situation that they are? It's been health. More than, more so than the rebounding. The reason the rebounding has been an issue is because of health. The reason they've been losing is because of health. But it's not just Derek Lively. Dante Exum has been out and I haven't talked about him as much throughout the season, but he's been in an important part to this Mavs offense and defense. 
He is a part of the top two Mavs lineups in net and defensive ratings and top four Mavs lineups in offensive ratings among all Mavs lineups that have played at least 15 minutes. The Mavs' preferred starting lineup, according to Jason Kidd, is Luka Doncic, Kyrie Irving, Dante Exum, Derek Jones Jr., and Derek Lively, the second. That lineup, among 15-plus among 15 minutes, 15 minutes played, ranks second best in the offensive rating category at 146.4. Second best defensive rating at 85.5. Best net rating at 61. So when you don't have Exum, you don't have another ball handler along with Luka and Kyrie, and he's a great defender too, to have him on the floor with Derrick Jones Jr. and with Luka and Kyrie stepping up their defense this season, they have been really good when he's on the floor. And so when he's out, they have a bit of an issue with those strengths, right? Then on top of that, you also need more depth in the front court because Derek Lively II cannot be your only center. He can be your one center on the floor at a time, but then after that, if you're not going, if Dwight Powell's not going to be the one to rebound as well as he does, which he doesn't, if you're not going to use Rashawn Holmes, Holmes as often as you should, Jason Kidd, um, then you won't get the same production that you will out of a Derek Lively. So you, you're going to need more front court depth that can do what Derek Lively can do to continually utilize the pick and roll to, con- to get some more miscellaneous scoring. That's just something that the Mavs have to go after, whether, whether it's this season or in the offseason, bolster their front court. They really need it because they have plenty of talented guards, but they're really thin in the front court. Can they win 50 games this year? I estimate that they can probably win 46 or 47. I don't think they'll get to 50. And one of those reasons is because they have a brutal stretch coming up. So if I look at their schedule, they've got to play Boston, Phoenix, Atlanta, Sacramento, Orlando, Minnesota, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, New York, Oklahoma City before they finally get a couple of easy games against Washington and San Antonio before the All-Star break. So they are about to go through a rough stretch. And that might hurt their ability to win as many games as they need because they still need 26 more wins to get to 50 in order in order to reach that mark. So I think it's more I think it's plausible that they can get to 46 wins, 47 wins. Probably not 50. I wouldn't expect that. However, that might be enough to make the top six in the West. But if you give more games away like you did in the first half of the season, you will not get to that number. You might find yourself in the play-in again. So that's another point of contention for the Mavs. They can't give games away like they did against Cleveland. They have to win the games they're supposed to win and then get close enough to maybe steal a few from the top teams in the West and the East. So... Now that we've gotten through the Mavs side of this, in the next segment, we'll talk about the Pels and the Thunder and look at their midseason reports. Let's break down the Pelicans and how they've come through 41 games. 
through 41, they had a 24 and 17 record, identical to the Mavericks. Currently 25 and 18 after beating the Charlotte Hornets and then losing to the Phoenix Suns. Their offense and defense, they score 116.7 points per game, which is 12th in the NBA. They allow 112.3 points per game. That's 11th. Their offensive rating is 117.2, which is 10th in the NBA. Their defensive rating is 112.6, which is 8th in the NBA. Their net rating is 4.6. So they are a top 10 offense, top 10 defense. That's why this team is dangerous. They have a strength in rebounding, which the Mavs and the Thunder do not. The Pelicans have out-rebounded opponents in 23 of their first 41 games. That ties the eighth most games in the NBA, and they were 18 and 5 in those 23 games. Currently, they've out-rebounded opponents in 24 of their first 43 games with a 19 and 5 record, which ties the ninth best win percentage in that category at 0.792. That would be the second best win percentage in a season when out-rebounding opponents in franchise history. So the Pelicans really do have a strength in rebounding, and it's going to propel them when they when they really need it in games where they're struggling offensively. In the clutch, however, they are not doing well. That's a problem that they need to fix now. They're 6-9 and nine in the clutch. That's 26th in the NBA win percentage. Their clutch free throw percentage is worse. They are at 59.2%. How is that acceptable for a professional team? That's 30th in the NBA. They're the only team below 60% free throws in the clutch. The next works, the next worst team is Houston at 67.9%. Last season they were shooting 77.3% from the free throw line in the clutch. And that was 18th in the NBA. How do you let yourself get below 60%? I don't understand that. I really don't. Because this season, the Pelicans are shooting 76.7% from the free throw line. That's 24th in the NBA. So they're pretty awful in free throw shooting throughout the season. But they crumble in clutch situations. And it's something that they're really going to have to clean up because Lord knows they cannot be losing close games like this. As they have, it, they they haven't been successful in games where the the score is decided by three or fewer. That's a much worse win percentage than their six and nine clutch record. But that has to be fixed through the second half of the season. I don't know how because I, these teams don't practice as much as they used to, according to some of these players. But they they can't allow themselves to be this bad shooting from the free throw line in the clutch because you're just giving games away at that point from three though the pelicans are shooting 38.2 percent this season that's fifth in the nba but they're only attempting 31.7 threes that's sixth fewest of course that has to do with their dominance in the paint but because they shoot well from outside and it's because of how dominant they are in the paint with all those kickouts they will be fine offensively as a whole. Let's look at their miscellaneous scoring. 51.8 points per game in the paint, which is 10th in the NBA. Last season was 53.4 and 9th. This season, second chance points per game, they score 14.2, which is 12th. Last year, 13.8. From the fast break, 14.1 this season, 16th in the NBA. 
whereas they scored 14.7 last year. And then points off turnovers per game this year, 17.3, which is 11th, while last year it was 18.2, which was 5th. All in all, not that much of a difference when you look at the entirety of the miscellaneous categories. Their efficiency from three is helping offset that miscellaneous dip. But this team, again, top 10 offense, top 10 defense, they're going to be fine when it comes to scoring and when it comes to defending. But what are they missing? And other athletes, other analysts have talked about this. It's this superstar effect. Zion Williamson basically has to be the one to take over games because what what I've heard others say is that if you look at specific teams, they have a superstar that can take over games, that can dominate, right? So for Minnesota, it's Anthony Edwards. For OKC, it's Shea Gilgis-Alexander. For Dallas, it's Luka Doncic. For Boston, it can be Jason Tatum. For Milwaukee, it's Giannis Antetokounmpo. Sometimes it can be Damian Lillard, but they, there is... And then for Philly, Joel Embiid. For Denver, Nikola Jokic. Sometimes Jamal Murray. There is somebody that they can go to every single time and they will come out with a win. For the Pelicans, it has to be Zion. There's no one else who can do what he can do. So when he's aggressive, he can either take advantage inside based on what the defense is giving him or he can draw enough defenders to kick out for threes. And that was evident Wednesday, January 17th versus Charlotte, where he only scored 13 points on 5 of 11 shooting, 3 of 4 from the free throw line with 5 rebounds, 9 assists, and 3 steals. Now, I'm really going to look at these 9 assists because 6 of them came in the first half, and out of all 9 of them, 8 of them were 3s. Meaning a direct pass from wherever he was was kicked out, and a 3 was shot and made. That's the effect that he has to have, right? Because if teams game plan defensively and they say, we're going to stop Zion from getting in the paint, well, this is a way to counteract that move. That's making the right play. But it's still dominance from Zion. That's what he has to do. If he gets passive, then the offense just doesn't go. He's got to be the guy to take over the games, whether or not he's scoring. Now, I did mention this Hornets game. I want to give a shout-out to Brandon Ingram because he got his third career triple-double and his first triple-double of the season in that game. Now that we're done with Pelicans, let's move over to the Oklahoma City Thunder and check out their midseason report. Through 41 games, they are 28-13, currently 29-13 after a clutch win in Minnesota. Offense and defense, they, they score 121.7 points per game. That's outrageous third in the NBA. They give up 113.7, which is 14th in the NBA. Their offensive rating is 119.8. That's fourth. Their defensive rating is 111.7, which is sixth. Their net rating is 8.1, which is third. Top five offense, top six defense. So everything I mentioned about offensive and defensive ratings for the Pelicans, it's even better for the Thunder. However, their biggest weakness is rebounding because they've been out-rebounded in 28 of their first 41 games 
with a 15 and 13 record in those games. Now that is the most wins in the NBA. Currently they've been out rebounded in 29 of their first 42 games. Second most games out rebounded this season, 16 and 13 record. That's the most wins in the NBA. Second best win percentage at 0.552. And it's the best win percentage among teams with 20 or more games out rebounded. A little bit more on being out rebounded in a, in a little bit. Let's look at them in the clutch. They're 13 and nine in the clutch, tied for eighth in the NBA and win percentage at 0.591. Their clutch free throw percentage is 87.3%, which is third in the NBA, better than they were last year, which was 80.6%, and that was ninth in the NBA. And the season before, they shot 75.4% from the free throw line in the clutch, which was 22nd. So it's been a constant improvement. Overall free throw shooting, three-point shooting, the Thunder shoot 84% from the free throw line this season. That leads the league. They also shoot 39.1% from three, which is second. They attempt 33 and a half threes per game, which is 17th most. But they make 13.1, which is 13th most. So right around the middle of the pack, but they're very efficient when they take the three. And they have plenty of scores, plenty of three-point specialists when they need it. In the miscellaneous categories, they score 54 paint points per game, which is fifth in the NBA. And get this, in the restricted area, they shoot 67.4%, which is 12th in the NBA. Earlier in the season, they were about 18th in the NBA, and last season they were last. So this has been a constant improvement since even last season, but definitely since the beginning of this season, converting at the rim. Last season, they scored 55.2 points per game in the paint, which was third. In the second chance, the Thunder scored 10.5 points per game, which is 29th. That's really low. And I've already talked about their second chance struggles in a, in a previous episode. Last year, they were scoring 13.9 second chance points per game, which was 13th in the NBA. However, on the fast break, they scored 16.1 fast break points per game, which is sixth. Last year, they only scored 14.6, which was 12th. And then off turnovers, they lead the league with 19.9 points off turnovers per game, but it's less than where they were last year, which was 20.6 and was second because I believe it was Toronto that led the league that year in points off turnovers. And it was ridiculous, like 21 points per game off turnovers. But what are they missing? Rebounding more than anything. It's rebounding. Chet can't space the floor, defend the rim, and rebound all at the same time. He's just one guy. He's the only guy that's over seven feet on that roster. Now, it's not like he has to be on the floor at all times or the replacement is going to be on the floor at all times, but nobody can rebound. Like, nobody. So it, unless there's a, there's a consensus effort, then... Other teams are just going to bully the Thunder at, on the glass. Season by season, rebounding has gotten worse in the last three years. This season, they only rebound 41.0 rebounds per game, which is 28th in the NBA. Last season was 43.7 rebounds per game, 14th in the NBA. And the season before, in 2021-2022, 45.6 rebounds per game, which is 6th in the NBA. Now... I had mentioned that 
they do well when they get out-rebounded. However, I want to make this point very clear. The Thunder are the only team in the NBA this year who's undefeated when they are not out-rebounded. When they are not out-rebounded. All right? That means if you match the rebounding of your opponent or you out-rebound your your opponent, the Thunder win every game. They're 13-0 this season. The defense is too good. Remember, remember they are sixth. The defense is too good to... It's so good that if they just improve their rebounding a little bit, they can win even more games than they are right now. They can potentially get past Minnesota in the standings. They're not that far behind. Rebounding is the key. And if they want to go for it this year, they need to address that by the trade deadline. If that's something that they want to push off and wait for this team to figure out how to play in the playoffs, then you can address it in the offseason. But that is something with the makeup of this roster, you have to take into consideration that their lack of rebounding is the reason they're losing games because they haven't lost one when they out-rebound opponents. All right, now I want to bring in some positive energy about the Thunder because they snapped Utah's six-game win streak and Minnesota's four-game win streak with big wins. Thunder versus Jazz, all five starters and double figures. And what I'm about to give you are stats that we actually used on the air. Maybe one of them we didn't end up using, but we had available. All five starters were in double figures in this game, which was the 12th game this season that's happened. And that ties the third most in the NBA through January 18th. The fourth wire-to-wire win for the Thunder this season. 29 fast break points, which ties the third most for the Thunder this season. And they had 36 assists, but get this, they had 24 assists in the first half. That's the most in any half in Thunder history since 2008. That's the most in the first half in franchise history, dating all the way back to the early days of the Seattle Supersonics. It it ties... No, I just said that. The last time 24 assists came in any half was March 20th, 1977. Second half versus Denver. Actually, I don't think I mentioned this part. It ties the most in any half in franchise history because the date that I just mentioned, March 20th, 1977, that's the second half. So most in the first half in franchise history ties the second, ties the most in any half in franchise history. And it's been a long time. It's just been a long time since the Thunder had shared the ball like that. So plenty of stuff that I got to use on that day. Had to pick one, but a lot of stuff that you can salivate on about the Thunder and their passing. Now against the Timberwolves, they had 28 points off turnovers. <laughs> 14 of them came off of six Minnesota turnovers in the first quarter. Eight points off turnovers came off of seven Minnesota turnovers in the fourth quarter. And then the Thunder also had 12 steals, which is the fourth most this season. Very different from what happened in Los Angeles, where against the Lakers, they shot too many threes. And then against the Clippers, Paul George went off for a season high. So the Thunder against the Lakers, they attempted 49 threes, which is unheard of for the Thunder. And against the Clippers, Paul George had a, had a stat line of 38 points, 15 of 24, 62.5% shooting from the floor, 6 of 12 from three. He had a season high in points and field goals made in that game. He looked vintage. So quite a, quite a bounce back considering that two-game drop in L.A., and now the Thunder are closing in on the Minnesota Timberwolves 
in the West standings. So what they have coming up, they've got Portland at home before they start a three-game road trip. So look forward to that. In the next segment, we will talk about the upcoming matchups in the NBA as we get ready for NBA Rivals Week. And we'll check out the last fan returns for All-Star voting. Let's look at the third fan returns of All-Star voting. These are not the final numbers, but these were the third fan returns before, before voting ended on Saturday. In the Western Conference front court, LeBron James leads the way, followed by Nikola Jokic, Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard, Alperen Shangun, Paul George, Victor Wembanyama, Chet Holmgren, and DeMontis Sabonis. And then the West Guards are led by Luka Doncic, followed by Stephen Curry, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Anthony Edwards, De'Aaron Fox, Ja Morant, Devin Booker, and Austin Reeves. And then on the Eastern Conference front court, Giannis leads the way, leads all, all players. And then he's followed by Joel Embiid, Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brown, Kristaps Porzingis, Bam Adebayo, Paolo Bencaro, Julius Randle, Mikhail Bridges, and then among the East Guards, Tyrese Halliburton leads the way, followed by Trey Young, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Tyrese Maxey, Jalen Brunson, Derek White, LaMelo Ball, Drew Holiday, and DeMar DeRozan. Now, once we get the final returns, we'll know who's going to be the starters, and then eventually after that, they will release, the NBA will release who else made the All-Star game, and then with injuries... They will mark their replacements. So we'll find out over the next few weeks who's going to be in that game. Next, let me bring up some news that came since the last time I released an episode. Pascal Siakam got traded traded to the Indiana Pacers. Bruce Brown was one of the pieces that Indiana moved over to Toronto, who had just come off a championship with Denver and then signed in the offseason with the Pacers. So... As we get closer to matchups between the Pacers and the Mavs, Pels, Thunder, we can look at how Pascal Siakam has affected that team and where they're going from this point on. Then, some news in sports broadcasting. Amazon is reportedly investing in Diamond Sports Group. I will talk more about that after the all the legal side of that clears, considering I am an employee of DSG, but more, more as a freelancer and just want to let the court process play out, make sure that all of it is approved before talking about it in any capacity. But this will change the way reportedly how people get their local sports as this transition would move all of the Bally Sports content to Amazon Prime Video. So more on that story as we get more information as more of it becomes clear and finalized and once the company's out of bankruptcy then we'll figure out what's next on the table for all these sports deals and all that next week in the next episode really we'll recap a bit of week 13 week 14 what i didn't already go over and we will recap nba rivals week Speaking of NBA Rivals Week, let me let you know about the schedule among national television. On Tuesday, January 23rd, the Knicks 
and the Nets play at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the Lakers and the Clippers at 10.9 Central on TNT. Wednesday, January 24th, the Suns and the Mavericks will play at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central on ABC, Arizona's Family Sports, and Valley Sports Southwest. Then the Thunder and the Spurs will play at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 8.30 p.m. Central on ESPN, Valley Sports Oklahoma, and CW35. Thursday, January 25th, the Celtics and the Heat will play at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the Kings and the Warriors at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. Friday, January 26th, the Mavericks and the Hawks will play at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central on NBA TV, Valley Sports Southwest, and Peachtree TV. Then on Saturday, January 27th, the Heat will play the Knicks at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the 76ers and the Nuggets at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Central on TNT, eventually followed by the Lakers and the Warriors at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central on TNT. Now, among local television, on Monday, January 22nd, the Boston Celtics and the Dallas Mavericks will play at 8.30, 7.30 Central on NBC Sports Boston and Valley Sports Southwest. Tuesday, January January 23rd, the Utah Jazz will play the New Orleans Pelicans at 8, 7 Central on KJazz and Valley Sports New Orleans. And then the Trailblazers and the Oklahoma City Thunder will play at 8, 7 Central on Root Sports and Valley Sports Oklahoma. Friday, January 26th, the... Thunder and the Pelicans will face off at 8-7 Central on KSBI for OKC and Valley Sports New Orleans. And then on Saturday, January 27th, the Sacramento Kings will play the Dallas Mavericks at 9-8 Central on NBC Sports California and Valley Sports Southwest. And then the Pelicans and the Bucks will play at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Valley Sports Wisconsin. And the last game of the week for local TV, Sunday, January 28th, will be the Thunder and the Pistons at 6-5 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and Valley Sports Detroit. So that does it for me. That's all the games that we got coming up in the next week. Uh, Thanks again for watching and listening all the way through and just being along for the ride. I consistently appreciate all of your support. So again, that does it for me. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Estrella Johannes, signing off.